Well, good morning. If you like silent films, you've come to the right place today. Um, this time, I think the children can be dismissed if any of the children are left. Uh, if you turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 4 to 10 today. First Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Me will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you go to the doctor for a checkup, the doctor will do uh, some tests, most likely, or exams to make sure that you're healthy and make sure nothing is wrong. If you're a student, you'll be given exams and tests to kind of measure where you're at and see maybe what you're struggling with or what you're doing well in. If you have a business, you kind of monitor the health of the business by maybe a number of different measures, probably most of them financial. The government kind of measures the health of the country with things like the unemployment rate, the strength of the military, etc. But how do we measure the strength or the health of a church? There's some churches that have been healthy for many years, some churches that have been around for centuries. But many churches find themselves in church splits or church divisions that kind of rip apart the church. And sometimes those divisions are caused by things like theological issues. Sometimes they're really small issues, like what's going to happen in the end times, where people have different opinions about those things. Sometimes it's about silly things, like the color of a carpet or whatnot. Sometimes it's because a pastor or other church leader falls into some sin. Sometimes it's because there's troublemakers that enter the church and just sow division. Sometimes it's disagreement over building projects. I remember I was a part of one church, and this church, some of the people in the church decided that they wanted to build a new church. Other people decided, well, we've, we're here, we don't need to build a new church, let's just stay here. So they started to raise money to build a new church, but not everybody was on board with it. And so they couldn't come to an agreement, so they ended up buying an old church building that was roughly the same size as the building that they were already in, and just moved a little bit away from where they were. Now we can't prevent conflicts. Conflicts will happen in the body of Christ. We can't prevent those kind of things. But how do we measure the health of a church? What's the fundamental characteristic or fundamental mark of a healthy church? That's a question I'd like us to consider today as we look at this passage. But before we get there, we need to answer a few other questions about the church. 
We need to answer who makes up the church. We need to answer what is the identity of the church. And then we can get to that last question, what's that fundamental mark of the health of the church? So first we need to answer who makes up the church. The passage describes Jesus as the living stone, being the cornerstone of the church. He's the litmus test, so to speak, for those who are either Christians or who are not Christians. The text tells us that whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. The text says in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. That word honor is a word that we've seen uh, last week. It's the word, Greek word time, which means redemption price. And here it means honor. So it says the honor is for you who believe. And on the other hand, it says for those who do not believe, Jesus is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 says it this way. Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so either Christ is the cornerstone of your faith, the cornerstone of the church, or He's someone that you stumble over. It's not, you can't be a Christian without following Christ. It's not like you can just have this kind of vague notion of a relationship with God. Christ is kind of the dividing mark where you have to go either one way or the other. He's either a stumbling block to your faith or the cornerstone or strength of your faith. So simply, who makes up the church? It's anyone who believes in Jesus, who trusts in Jesus by faith. That's pretty simple. But what is the identity of the church? Peter tells us first that the church is a chosen race. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, Israel is likewise described as a chosen race. Now, it's understandable why Israel would be called a chosen race. God chose Abraham out of all the, nation, all the people in the world. And He made some promises to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so God fulfilled that promise, and He made Abraham into a great nation. And He chose Abraham and his descendants, Israel, to be kind of a light to the nations, to demonstrate to the nations the glory of God. So we can understand why Israel was a chosen nation, because God chose Abraham, God chose Israel to be a light to the nations. But it's maybe a little bit more surprising that Peter would use this in relationship to the church, because we come from all different walks of life. We come from all different descendants, at least physically. But just like Israel was descended from one man, Abraham. Christians are descended from one man, Christ. And so Peter says, you are a chosen race. The beautiful thing about this is it means it erases all distinctions that might separate us. It erases all ethnicity as something that would tear us apart. That in Christ we're one race. We're one nation that God has brought together. Colossians 3.11 says it this way, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So the church is a new race of people who are united not by the blood of their ancestors, but by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ. So Peter says you 
are a new race, a chosen race. And then he says you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Now, we kind of understand a holy nation, that they're to be set apart, just like, like they're a chosen race, they're to be set apart to be a light to the nations. We can understand that they're a people of God's own possession, that God, they're God's own special people. But what does it mean to be a royal priesthood? Well, all of these phrases actually come from the book of Exodus, right before God is about to give Israel the law, the Ten Commandments, and make a covenant with them. These three phrases appear in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 6 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So there would be a royal priesthood. It's a royal priesthood because this is nation is belongs to the King of Universe, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So it's royal in that sense. But if we're going to understand what it means that believers are a priesthood and Israel was a priesthood, we need to understand a little bit about priests. There's two things that were significant about priests. The first was the priests were consecrated. They were set apart even from Israel. Israel was a chosen nation itself, but the priests were set apart even more than the nation itself. The priests had to wear special garments, and it was described in the book of Exodus exactly how those garments would be made and the jewels and things that would be on those garments. And we see that they had to kind of avoid certain things and make sure they did do other certain things. And these were special requirements that were for priests. I'll give you just a sampling from Exodus 21 just for some of the guidelines that priests had to follow. Exodus chapter 21 verse, or I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 21 says, they shall not make bald patches on their heads or shave off the edge of, the, of their beards nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their Lord and not profane the name of their God for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, therefore they should be holy. So priests were set apart to be extra pure and extra holy from the nation itself. But second, the, t- the priests were tasked with some pretty important tasks. They were to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. They were to be kind of intermediaries between God and between man. They were to ask for forgiveness on behalf of the people. They were to interpret the law and settle disputes on behalf of the people. They were even to go so far as to represent God sometimes on behalf of the people. So in what sense do these things apply to us as believers? In what sense are believers a priesthood? First, believers are set apart. They're consecrated. They wear special clothing, the perfect righteousness of Christ. Believers are made holy by Christ's blood and they're called to live holy, set-apart lives. Further, as a priesthood, we're called to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And the text tells us it's not sacrifices of, of a ram or a goat. It's a sacrifice of giving Christ our lives. But it goes even further than that. As priests, we're called to be God's intermediaries. God's representatives to the world. To show the world what God is like. To point people towards Jesus. And even to represent the love of God to those around us. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.20. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the church is a royal priesthood, holy nation, people of God's possession, is set apart, consecrated by Christ's blood. And because of that, we're consecrated or set apart in our conduct. And we're to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, giving God the sacrifice of our own lives. And we're to represent God to the world, to be God's intermediary, to show the world what God is like. So we answered the question, who makes up the church? It's anyone who believes in Jesus, who doesn't stumble over Him, who makes Him the cornerstone of their lives. We've answered the question, what is the identity of the church, that it's a chosen, the church is a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of God's own possession. We still have that last question. What is the fundamental mark of a healthy church or a church that's on mission? I think Peter gives us that pretty clearly in verse 9. When he says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here it is, that in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This word excellencies can be translated this way as excellency that can be translated as praises or as wonderful deeds. It speaks of the great things that God has done. And so Peter says your primary goal as a royal priesthood, as a chosen race, as a holy nation, as a people of God's own possession, is that you might proclaim the deeds of Him who called you out of darkness into light. Now what's interesting is when the Jews spoke about the exodus, and how God delivered them, they spoke about it as a journey from darkness into light. Israel was in darkness. There were people who had no resources. They were being oppressed by the Egyptians and slavery. And they had no hope. And God took them and delivered them by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And He brought them to a new land, a promised land. But even as He did that, even as He brought them out of Egypt... It seemed just about immediately they started complaining. Started saying, well, at least we had some bread and food back in Egypt. They started worshiping other gods as Moses is going up on the mountain to receive the law. They're worshiping a calf. Time and time again, they found themselves worshiping other gods. So it gets pretty bad. The judges come and they try to kind of rein in the people's uh, iniquity. But as it says in Judges, in those days there was no king. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. Then they longed for a king. Maybe a king would be able to kind of rein in their evil. But kings came and kings went. And some of the kings were good. But most of them, by and large, led the people into idolatry. They were, by and large, just representatives of the people. Representatives of the people's idolatry. And so then it got bad again. Got so bad that the people of Israel were sent into exile. Both the northern and southern kingdom were sent into exile. The southern kingdom to Babylon, the northern kingdom to Assyria. And once again, God's people would be in darkness. Once again, God's people would be in oppression. Once again, God's people would be in slavery. But the prophet Hosea wrote just before every, all this is about to go down, just before they're about to be sent into exile again, And he prophesies that God is going to send them into exile. God's going to judge their sin. 
But he also prophesies that there's going to be a restoration. That there's going to be a healing that comes. It says in Hosea 1 verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And then in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. So you're going to exile. You're going to be in slavery once again. You're going to be in darkness, but God is going to bring you out to light. You're going to be called cast-offs. You're not going to be called God's people anymore, but then God is going to restore you again, and once again, you're going to be called God's children. And what's amazing is that Peter applies this passage, the fulfillment of this passage to his readers when he says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what's interesting is that Peter describes himself as writing from Babylon, the metaphorical place of exile. And he's writing from Babylon to the church in exile and saying, now God has made you a people once again. Now we don't know exactly if this was if Peter was writing to Gentiles or to Jews. But the point is the same. Once you were not a people. Once you were in darkness. Once you were in exile. But now you're God's children. So how does that happen? How does a people or a person go from not being the people of God to becoming God's people? I think the book of Hosea gives it to us pretty clearly. He talks about a covenant that would be made. A betrothal. In Hosea 2, verses 16 and 20, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever." I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. You shall know and you shall know the Lord. God says, I will betroth you to me. And shortly after this, God commands Hosea to kind of illustrate what God is talking about. To put into a clear picture the restoration that God is going to bring. And he calls Hosea to do this by redeeming his wayward, unfaithful wife. In verses 3 to 3, 1 to 3, it says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and leches of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So Hosea took his wife who was unfaithful to him time and time again. And he took her and he bought her back. Purchased her freedom. And that's a picture of what God has done for us in Jesus he took us despite our sin and our unfaithfulness and our broken and brokenness and He purchased our freedom not with silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the good news or the Gospel. 
That Jesus has brought us out of darkness into His marvelous life. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Once we were not a people, but now we're God's children. Once we had not received mercy, but now we've received mercy in Christ. And our only response to that, the only proper response to that, is that we might proclaim the deeds of Him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. So we're thinking about a question. What is the fundamental mark of a church that's healthy? That's the question we're considering. That fundamental mark is worship. A worshiping church is a healthy church. A healthy church is a worshiping church. The church exists for one reason. It's not to have social programs, although those are good in response to the Gospel. It's not to have events. It's not just to get together and drink coffee and have encourage one another. It exists because Christ called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Christ creates the church through the Gospel. And when we appropriate the Gospel in our life, the only proper response is worship. If, it, if the church is about anything else, we are desperately off track. The only thing the church is about is about worship in response to what God has done for us in Jesus. Not just with our mouths as we sing, but also as, with our lives as we live our lives from day to day. And look at something else in the Scripture. It says in the text, Jesus Christ is the living stone, the cornerstone. And it says in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. You're being built up into a spiritual house. What is the structure by which Christ is the cornerstone and the stones are being built on, if you look at, think about the picture? What is the structure that's being built up? The structure that's being built up is a temple. It's a temple. It's a place where God dwells and where God is worshipped. That's the reality of what a church is. It's a place where God dwells and where God is worshipped. And if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to be a church that's centered around what Christ has done for us in the Gospel. And when we get a hold of that, the only response is that we would worship with our hearts and with our lives. Scholar Karen Jobes writes this, the Christian community is portrayed as a temple, implying that now it, not a literal stone building, is the place of God's earthly dwelling by the Holy Spirit. A place of true worship and acceptable sacrifice the church is the temple a place where god dwells a place where god is worshiped that's what the church is about that's what a healthy church is about a healthy church is a worshiping church i'd like to close by reading a passage from psalm 111 that extols the wonderful works of the lord and as i read this may this be our cry May this be our song to God in response to what He's done for us. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. 
The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. In just a few minutes, let us praise the One who called us out of darkness and gave us new life. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your great love for us that was displayed in the cross. God, we thank You that You loved us so much that You sent Your Son to live a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins so that we might no longer live in darkness, that we might no longer live in despair, that we might no longer live in emptiness, but that we might have hope and purpose and live in Your perfect light. God, we thank You for that. God, I pray that we would be a church that's focused on the Gospel and what You've done for us. That we would never get distracted by doing this thing or that thing, but that Your work would be the center of all that we do. And that as we appreciate, as we are in awe of what You've done for us, that we would respond by worshiping You with our hearts and our lives. God, we pray that You do that for us today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.